This is The Mystical Positivist, a radio show dedicated to the application of reason and the pursuit of spiritual practice and development. It consists of commentary, book reviews, interviews, and discussion in and around the local and larger spiritual community. The thesis of the show is that rationality is in no way the antithesis of deep mystical experience. In fact, we assert that it is a necessary ally. I'm your host, Stuart Goodnick. Joining me in the following presentation is my co-host, Dr. Robert Schmidt. Rob is the director of Taiyu Meditation Center and founder with myself and Jim Wilson of Mini Rivers Books and Tea in Sebastopol, California. This week on the show, we feature a pre-recorded conversation with returning guest Ken McLeod, in which we continue our ongoing discussion about the degree to which a transactional mode of being permeates our lives, relationships, and spiritual practice. We explore goals in relationship, the transactional as the currency of the horizontal realm, what a non-transactional way of living might be, and the unconditioned nature of the vertical realm. After learning Tibetan, Ken McLeod translated for his principal teacher, Kalu Rinpoche, and helped to develop Rinpoche's centers in North America and Europe. In 1985, Kalu Rinpoche authorized Ken to teach and placed him in charge of his Los Angeles center. Faced with the challenge of teaching in a major metropolis, Ken began exploring different methods and formats for working with students. He moved away from both the teacher-center model and the minister-church model and developed a consultant-client model. Ken is the founder and director of unfetteredmind.org. He is the author of Wake Up to Your Life, Discovering the Buddhist Path of Attention, The Great Path of Awakening, An Arrow to the Heart, Reflections on Silver River, and his most recent book, A Trackless Path. Ken McLeod, welcome back to The Mystical Positivist. Thank you very much. Always a delight to be here. Always a delight to have you, and um, we have to uh, begin by admitting that in our last uh, uh, three-person conversation, uh, we strayed off t- off uh, topic that we had agreed to talk about earlier. We went and vertical instead of horizontal. <laughs> well, that's a, that's that's a reference to the fact that that ended up being the vertical and the horizontal being the uh, topic that we eventually settled on or quickly settled on but this time we want to um, ask your help Ken to keep us on track and to start us off in the right direction I think we can um, with your assistance uh, stick to the topic so I invite you then to um, set the direction for us in our conversation well if I were to give it a name uh, or a title it might be uh, transactional and utilitarian thinking in spiritual practice. Fair enough. And the reason I, I find this topic important and interesting is that I've become very aware of how thoroughly transactional and utilitarian thinking permeates most people's thinking to the extent that a lot of people simply cannot think in any other framework. And this, uh, and the effect this has on their spiritual practice is more than a little problematic. So that's what I'd like to talk about today. Okay. Good. Well, maybe we can um, uh, start to open this up by some definitions. So when we talk about transactional um, how do you see that, or how does that? What are, what are the bounds of transaction, uh, the transactional in your mind? 
I'm going to go in a slightly different direction in response to that question, Stuart. A framework that someone gave me a very long time ago, which he thinks comes from Chinese sources, but sufficiently long time ago that he can't remember, is that there are three bases for relationships. Uh, One kind of relationship is where you exchange something. And that can be a material good, but it can also be praise or something like that. But the relationship is based on exchange. A second type of relationship is based on uh, achieving something, Uh, particularly when you uh, set out to achieve something that you cannot do by yourself. You have to join with other people in order to do it. Political change is a very good example. And then the third uh, basis for a relationship is uh, emotional connection. You aren't trying to get something from somebody. You aren't trying to achieve anything with other people. It's just that you want this person in your life or you want to be in their life. It's an emotional connection. And so many difficulties in relationships arise because the two parties engaged actually don't agree on the basis of the relationship. All three can be operating in a a given relationship, as they do in marriage, for instance. Mm -hmm. It has economic benefits. uh, You raise a family. That's one of the primary aims of marriage. And hopefully it's an emotional connection. Uh, But I can give, as we discuss, I can give examples of how conflict arises when there isn't agreement about the basis of a relationship. But what I find uh, more than a little problematic in uh, many people's spiritual practice is that they approach spiritual practice trying to get something for themselves. So now they're in the transactional framework. Hmm. It, it's uh, interesting uh, that uh, I just flashed on the um, a reference from... Um, George Gurdjieff's uh, uh, masterwork, All and Everything, Beelzebub's Tales to His Grandson, because he describes three w- ways in which you should read this uh, book. The first, and, and he also describes uh, prayer and action and how you approach anything. And, you know, the first is for um, the community. Uh, the second is for the larger purposes of the work, and then the last is for yourself. And and so there's this sort of in, this this threefold kind of uh, uh, relational model I well, see echoed in that. Say that again. The first was community. The second yeah, was it's like for other for the people around you for for the the work or the larger universe, and then and then finally and third and least important is to get something for yourself. Gosh, I. I I won't claim to understand Gurdjieff in this context, but the way you're presenting it, I would have to disagree quite profoundly. Okay. Uh, that's, uh, uh, and I may not be uh, uh, offering that quite in the uh, precise way, but so I don't want to go off in that direction. Um, the sense, though, of like um, recognizing different levels of which you are... Uh, in relationship and the relative priority of getting something for this idea of oneself as opposed to uh, doing something for others seems to be uh, in relationship to what you're talking about. 
But maybe not, because maybe, maybe you would call doing something for others uh, uh, transactional when it's done right. And it, it's interesting you, you're using that wording, because I would say that uh, doing something for others, I, I would probably see that as uh, in the second kind of relationship, achieving something. Okay. And, and which is where I see, say, the Bodhisattva vow which is all about doing something for others. Right. But it's doing something for others uh, implicitly without thought of getting something for oneself. Well, see, this is where it becomes very tricky and a little pernicious. And this is what I find happening. Uh, Mindfulness was originally basically a spiritual practice, at least in the context of Buddhism, and is now being commodified and people practice mindfulness in order to make their lives better. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they put in the time and effort on mindfulness, and they want to get a better life. It's fairly transactional in their thinking. But the pernicious thing is that as soon as you start doing something with the idea that you're going to get something out of it, you're in the transactional mindset. And this undermines the spiritual quality of the practice, whatever it is. Now, I know that there are at least three places in America, one of them is at Stanford, where compassion is being taught as a way for people to feel better about themselves. And this is the de-evolution or devolution of compassion into a self-help tool, which is so contradictory to how it is approached in spiritual practice. Okay, uh, let me let me just maybe you know an argument that someone might make is that they would agree in so far as our society is very egoistic or ego driven, uh, very individual, and that the that the only way that uh, someone might be invited into doing something like meta- meditation or uh, meditation for the welfare of someone else is if it's framed at least initially in the context of, oh, this will make you feel better. That argument has been presented to me a number of times. I'm of the opinion that you cannot plant dandelions and expect to get violets. Okay. Well, that's, <laughs> so at least we're clear. <laughs> Clearly you haven't been a gardener. <laughs> But, contrary. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's all about the word expectation there. But um, if it, if you guys are okay, yeah, I'd like I'd like to uh, approach this from another direction, which is the direction of time and relationship. Mm. So, um, so there's two two points that I want to invite you to consider, and we'll see if we can uh, make something of it. One is um, familial relations. And I'm not talking about marriage here. I'm talking about your relationship to uh, parents, um, aunts, uncles, cousins, nieces, nephews, etc. That's one, that's one aspect where I think um, <laughs> even, even, even in 21st century America, most people have some idea that there's an inherent relationship that may mean different things to different people in terms of 
exchange, but but there still lingers some some sense of this, not as strongly as I would say in my grandparents' generation. Say the other thing, though, that I want that I want to bring in here is um, is um, created familial relationships. Now, with my anthropological background, I I still remain fascinated by the idea that many hunter-gatherer groups formerly would establish a, we might call it a fictive familial relationship with uh, individuals in remote locations so that if resources fail because of drought or whatever, or flood or, or whatever in their own area. Um, I mean, this is how the anthropologists are explaining it. I don't think the people there necessarily view it quite that way, and that's, that, that's, that's of the essence here. But and the anthropologists um, would explain the utility of this sort of relationship because um, uh, circumstances vary. And sometimes you need you need help from other people, and so that kind of relationship, even though it might not be an exchange, there would be no exchange except the sort of exchange that that you would have with a with a family member when you when you create and seal the relationship. I suppose not unlike uh, a uh, wedding ritual or something like that in some cases, but but. Um, that relationship is a way to express, um, according to the anthropologists who, who, who um, describe these, this sort of relationship, as having um, the possibility but not the necessity of reciprocation of access to resources when needed, either way. I think this is very... I'm, I'm going to address the second Okay. Um, and we can come back to the first. Sure. Uh, but the, 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 your second uh, question, example, or whatever, mm-hmm. uh, I find very, very uh, fascinating, frankly. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I think it illustrates uh, exactly what I'm talking about. Okay. The, you put me in mind of a, an excerpt from David Graeber's book, uh, debt the first 5,000 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's the, it's the excerpt that uh, made me read the book. Or, oh, really? Uh, Interesting. Yeah. I'd come across the book before and I went, oh, why, why would I want to read that? And then I read this excerpt and I said, okay, I've got to read this book. <laughs> mm-hmm. And it's about an anthropologist who was uh, living with the Inuit, I think in Greenland. Okay. They ask, I, you know, I'm never quite sure what the right term is these days. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and participating as a member of the community. Mm-hmm. And they were on a walrus hunt, which consisted of all of the men spread over the ice flow, digging holes in the ice and standing over them with a spear. Mm-hmm. And when the walrus comes up to breathe, they harpoon it and then bring it in. He was unsuccessful. He did not harpoon or catch a walrus. Mm-hmm. He went, returned to his igloo and 
uh, had a little bit of <clears throat> excuse me um, fat left to uh, light the place and barely warm it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he was going hungry. <laughs> Later that afternoon, one of the successful hunters came by with a sled uh, loaded with walrus meat and unloaded several hundred pounds. Mm-hmm. Gave him the provisions. Well, <clears throat> and naturally he came out and thanked him. And the uh, native Greenlander said, no, no, no. But the anthropologist consist, uh, insisted on thanking him. And finally, the uh, Inuit said, uh, got very angry and said, <clears throat> do not thank me. With gifts we make, uh, we are human. With gifts we make slaves. With whips we make dogs. And David Graeber comments on this, that in Greenland society, this is what you did as a member of the society. But it was in no sense thought of as an exchange or reciprocation. It was simply what you did as a member of the society. And you can say it, make it as a shared aim rather than a transactional, at the very least. Because yeah, it was how the... And I went, oh... And, and, and to be human there mm-hmm. was to be able to give and receive without calculation. Right. And I thought, wow, that's a different thing. So that's what led me to read that book, mm-hmm. read that book. So, yeah, this is a... Oh, one, one other yeah. thing. It's the anthropologist's projection that it's about transaction and utility. Yes, no, oh, precisely. And that's why I worded it in my question the way I did. Okay. Oh, right, because you, you, you suggested that when it's described by anthropologists, you have to... Right, uh, it's, not report, it's not reported this way. Yeah, it's how, it's, you're, crea- you're creating a, a relationship, a meaningful relationship. That's, that's how, you know, um, uh, there, there's, there's a couple of terms in, um, in, in anthropological lingo to describe the distinction between the outside view and the inside view. Yeah. And, and the inside view is not that you're establishing this um, sense of mutual aid. You're establishing a, a human relationship with yeah. someone. And, and that's why... And, and I think that's how people self-define what it means to be human is what's different between um, what you're seeing in contemporary Western society that we started off the conversation with in terms of transactional uh, relations um, versus this, this other form of human relations. Yeah, exactly. And I, I'd go a step further. Um, I, I read not long ago E.F. Schumacher's A Guide for the Perplexed. Mm-hmm. When you do not have any experience with higher order things, you necessarily interpret those higher order things in terms of the lower order. Mm-hmm. So the anthropologist imbued with transactional thinking cannot see a higher level of uh, human relationship. I had this experience with an executive that I coached. He was the CEO of a Fortune 100 company. 
And uh, he had, uh, his board of directors had uh, insisted that he bring in a team of coaches to coach the senior executives. And he was having a lot of trouble with his coaches. And I listened to him and I said, look, fire them. He said, why? Because your level of leadership is at a higher level than they have. And they're actually trying to drag you down to a lower level of leadership. Hmm. That is, they couldn't see the sophistication and the effectiveness of his approach to leadership. And they were reducing it to something more transactional. And, uh, and it wasn't working, and it wasn't the way he wanted to lead the company. It wasn't in, in line with his own personal values. And that's why he was having problems with them. It wasn't because he was an effective leader. He was an extremely effective leader. Got it. So a, a direction to explore that uh, comes up for me is in, in this idea of transaction and that, uh, is how uh, hierarchies of power seem to uh, be enmeshed in transactional uh, uh, thinking that, that they because just even in the example that you uh, made you know someone with power sort of bestows things on people without power and uh, people with power often will demand things of people with less power and, and that that hierarchical um, model seems to go hand in hand with the uh, creation of a transactional way of uh, interacting. I don't know if you agree with that, but that, I, that's what I wanted to just kind of explore that. What is the relationship between hierarchy and um, uh, and the, and uh, transaction? Well, first I'd like to broaden the discussion a little bit. Uh, I, I, I said this in terms of transaction utilitarian thinking in terms of spiritual practice, but we have these three bases of relationship. Um, mutual benefit, that's a transaction. Mm -hmm. I give you this, you give me that. Uh, shared aim, whereas we're working together to achieve this. And emotional connection. Now, all three of those kinds of relationships, there are balances and imbalances in, uh, in them. And, and for any relationship, regardless of whatever level, it basically has to be balanced. Mm -hmm. and, then, uh, and then one other factor is that there are ways that you can undermine each of those relationships. I can go into that if you're interested. Uh, but the, when it comes to uh, hierarchies... Uh, hierarchies exist for a reason, and you know, we, we can't escape them. I mean, trees have hierarchies. <laughs> uh, you know, there are the big trees and the middle trees and the lower and the smaller trees, etc. And they all have a function mm -hmm. in the environment. And and you you can't have just big trees, and you can't have just bushes. You know, because things will evolve, and that that's how things have always evolved in nature. And the problem arises when hierarchies become fixed and cannot adapt to changing circumstances. And they can become fixed in a lot of different ways. And one of the most common in human affairs is that hierarchies based on competence 
devolve into hierarchies based on dominance. Mm-hmm. And that, that is a real problem. Because as a do- when it's, the hierarchy is based on dominance, it loses its flexibility, cannot adapt to new things, and exists in order to keep people. And that's where it becomes a transactional. So, so to tie this back to the example that you used from uh, David Graeber's book about the Inuit, the, the successful hunter obviously was successful, therefore uh, had a uh, privileged position in a hierarchy of competence. Mm-hmm. And from that place still acted like a human and, and whereas societies can shift where that person becomes a uh, 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 the leader because of dominance and it's a very different dynamic it's a very different dynamic and it's interesting to, to me that you use the word privileged position because in such a society privilege is not divorced from right. Hmm. That, or response, sorry, not right, responsibility. If you're in a privileged position in a society, i.e. You, you have a successful hunt, then you have a responsibility to the society. And if you don't exercise that responsibility, you're violating your relationship with uh, the society. That's where dominant hierarchies have fallen down. And we have the phrase, the French phrase, but we incorporate it into English, noblesse oblige, that there is an obligation on the part of nobility to take care of the people over whom they, whose land, you know, who farm their land, but they had an obligation to take care of them. And you see this in some, uh, in a few corporations. Uh, there's a carpet company or towel company on the East Coast that was, uh, when everything burned down, the owner of the company just kept paying everybody until the mm. factory was rebuilt. Uh, because that he was operating under that. He had the privilege, he had the wealth, but that required, the responsibility was to take care of his workers when things were bad. Yeah, and, they and, and certainly in uh, modern business consulting, the idea of the servant leader is a uh, popular one. Stuart, um, Stuart Block, right? Yeah, but I, I, I haven't. Peter, yeah. Anyway, you know, no, uh, steward, stewardship. I'm sorry, not steward. Uh, Peter Block, uh, who wrote a book on stewardship, leadership of stewardship. It's a very good book, but it totally threatens the power structures as they are structured today. Well, I, w- I want to point out that that you know, to return to to the anthropological contexts, um, there there are many examples of societies where where there are um, ways in which the successful hunter is, um, if, if, assuming it's a he, if he um, is regularly successful and feels inflated about that um, um, with regard to others, there are many mechanisms, social mechanisms, that different societies employ in order to puncture that inflation for the indi- for the individual, and and so there you know there there are you know uh, derision or kidding or or something like that, and then there are societies. Uh, you, you were speaking of David Graeber, his new book with uh, David Wengro uh, points to the way that um, often social groups define each other 
by refusing what the neighbor social group is doing. So uh, the example that he uses is uh, Californian Native uh, Indigenous people versus Northwest Coast Native Indigenous people, where in the Northwest Coast, you have, you have these hierarchies, as you're describing them, not, not as servant, but as, as master. So there were slaves. But in California, they explicitly, we don't do that. The California uh, Native groups uh, would expressly, um, explicitly express um, their rejection of slavery in terms of we're not like them. We do it differently. Okay. And, and um, but I'd, I'd, I'd still like to, I mean, we're, we're talking at, at broad sociological levels, essentially, mm-hmm. here. Um, um, I'm wondering if we can get it um, back to either the family or, the, or spiritual practitioners, relationships among spiritual practitioners. Well, let's... Uh I think we can cover both, but let's turn to the spiritual. That's what I'm most familiar with. Uh, As long as you think you're going to get something out of doing spiritual practice, Mm -hmm. you're not meeting the sacred on its own terms. That's clear. I would agree with it. So, so this is... It's, it seems clear, and I think it's also um, interesting then to explore then why why do people engage in spiritual practice? Because certainly there's a a pure sort of yearning that some people experience, and there's other cases where people are like dissatisfied for some reason their world their world is not working, and they're drawn to something to address why their world isn't working and um, you know that may have more of a flavor of transactional because they're mm-hmm. avoiding something well n- not necessarily avoiding something they're looking for help yeah uh, and uh, yes and many people their relationship with spiritual practice is transactional rainmakers right? Uh, is one, one example. You know, you I'm, not, offer, I'm not following you. you offerings to, God, to the gods oh, so, oh. so that you get rain, okay. which we should probably think about here in California. <laughs> <laughs> when you said rainmakers, I thought it was uh, a business or oh, nice, rainmaker. Nice, yeah. uh, well, they're sort of similar, but <laughs> <laughs> not exactly. No, but uh, the, uh, I mean that that's. And in my own training, the relationship with many of the local deities was very definitely transactional. I'll give you this stuff, you leave me alone. Yeah, I mean, that, and that's... When I think of indigenous communities and uh, uh, practices, there's a lot of practices that have that sort of flavor and yet they also have the flavor that you know you're trying to live in a, in accord with nature and and so that it's mm-hmm. it's transactional in the sense of you want to avoid bad things but it's also you know these actions are not just for me it's it's like I'm doing something for the community um, yes and, and it's part of the maintenance of the Community space. Yeah, I'm, I'm. I want to participate with you in creating a better world. 
Yeah, and that and that's why I'm, I, I it's it's this is this gets to motivation of like uh, what what does transactional mean because it's like are you really being transactional with a spirit if what I it's it just like in the same way that the hunter you know gives the walrus to the the person who didn't have a successful hunt people have this idea of their relationship with the spirit world, like the ancestors is a good example. I've got to give honor to the ancestors. Mm -hmm. uh, to not do that would make me something less of what I, what what, what I, I could be. Right. And yet, when we look at that, there's a tendency to project on that uh, a transaction. A transaction. Yeah. And, and so, so we have to be really careful because it, it, this gets back into this, what, what is the lived experience of the action versus the appearance of that action? I think, I think that's very true. Uh, but what I, I, I want to hark back to our previous conversation uh, mm -hmm. in that when you are looking for a fundamental relationship with life, then you aren't actually on... Uh, in the basis of uh, in the horizontal, and all of these three bases of relationship are really about the horizontal. Mm -hmm. uh, some people get, uh, you know, they 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 love their practice, mm -hmm. uh, or, or they love their religion. It's it's and it's it's an emotional connection. Yes, and I think and that is often a very important aspect of spiritual practice because it's only through such an emotional connection that you can actually generate the levels of energy you need. But is that the point of spiritual practice in terms of the vertical? Not exactly. Well, but that's, that's tricky. Um, I mean, I'd like to uh, tease, that, tease that out a bit because, um, because it, you know, as soon as you start talking about benefit, yes. um, then you're, you're sliding into, at least, at yes. least in our culture, you're sliding into that consideration um, that you that you are you know um, wishing to point out here. I, I, and I agree with you. It is tricky, and I think it is more difficult in our society because that what what do I get out of it? The benefit that I get out of it is um, so permeates our thinking. Let's take it back to another uh, societal aspect. A lot of people. Uh, at some point in their lives, sometime right from the beginning, look to uh, work with nonprofits, mm -hmm. do nonprofit work. But a lot of the people who do that are looking to get some kind of emotional satisfaction or some kind of societal status or something from doing that. Yes. And if they aren't getting it from that organization, then they'll move to another organization while they get that. That is, they're not really connected to the aim of the nonprofit, mm -hmm. and that is where the transactional thinking of what am I getting out of it undermines the connection with the aim. Other people they engage with the nonprofit because they really believe in what the nonprofit is doing, and what they get out of it is of secondary importance if it's of any importance at all. Yes, although... Now, you can always define things, and this is, I think, the poison of rage, that everything is transactional. Yeah. But I don't think that's a very helpful way of looking at things. Right. That, that's so, just a massive flattening of everything. Right. Yeah. There, no, agreed. There, there's a, um, a word that, that comes up in relationship to this that um, is conditional. 
and you know, we in some conversations we've been having uh, in our study groups about uh, what we call in the fourth way tradition sacred being impulses uh, that things like love or faith uh, can be unconditional and when they become conditional um, you know faith becomes belief uh, you know, uh, love becomes uh, preference as it were um, and uh, uh, hope becomes um, uh, optimism or pessimism and so one one way that as we're talking about this is kind of coming up to me is that um, and this gets us into the vertical and the horizontal again is that the there's an unconditioned way of being and there's a conditional way of being and the conditional way of being by its very nature but even by the word the word syllables in my mouth is transactional because it depends on conditions and the unconditioned is is I, I uh, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that that's what the terms like immeasurables uh, tries to get into is that there's, there's there are being impulses and ways of being that are unconditioned, and then there's a way of being that's conditioned. And so then the question with spiritual practice is, what is conditioned in one's practice versus what's unconditional? I I agree with everything you just said there, uh, Stuart. I'd like to take it a little step further in that uh, I had, you reminded me of a conversation I had with uh, a person that I just met. Uh, and we went for a long walk together. And he described to me a particular poignant uh, episode in his relationship with his wife. Uh, they, he was very devoted to her, and uh, this is years ago, but they, uh, one uh, evening they they had had a fight about something or other. And at this point, they had two children, so it was a, a family, and uh, it was a it was a terribly contentious fight, so contentious that he decided he he wasn't going to sleep in the same room. He went down and slept on a couch or something downstairs, and he was really upset about this uh, disagreement that he'd had with his wife. And he couldn't sleep. And eventually he said, this is, this, is, this is ridiculous. This is not who we are. And he got up uh, and started to go upstairs, and his wife was coming downstairs at the same time to have the same conversation. And he, uh, he, he has a therapeutic background. And then he s- slipped in the phrase, you know, would you rather be happy or right? Or, uh, would you rather be right or happy? And I said, I hate that phrase. <laughs> And he said, why? I said, because it gives a false either-or thing. And I'm bringing this up because it's somewhat transactional nature. You and your wife both realized that your relationship was of a higher value than what you were arguing about, and so you couldn't let it sit. It wasn't about being right. It wasn't about being happy. It was about your relationship. And And he said, yeah, you're exactly right. And he said, you have no idea how many clients I've I've talked with in terms of saying, you know, there's something more here than this or that. (laughs) And so you're suggesting a hierarchy vertical. I would say that there's a hierarchy in all these three bases of relationship and right up to the spiritual, which becomes the vertical, as you say. And that so many things... uh, 
can go wrong in relationships because they do not operate at the level that the relationship uh, needs to operate. And a, a very two very powerful examples for me are our healthcare system and our education system. Properly speaking, both education and healthcare are shared aims. And so, as a doctor or as a teacher, you have privileges and responsibilities. But as a patient or a student, you also have responsibilities because it's a shared aim. But many people approach their healthcare as I'm paying you money, give me good health. This doesn't work because if you don't take care of your diet and things like that, you're not going to have it. And the same thing with education. I paid my money, give me my degree. And that's led to a degeneration of the quality of education for all kinds of reasons, which we can go into or not. But I think it is very important for people to understand that there are these higher, these levels in which one can relate to life. And the lowest level isn't always the best, even though it may, may be the most accessible or the easiest to talk about. So I was just thinking, as you use that example, that in spiritual practice, of, uh, you know, there, it's not uncommon for someone to feel, I've been practicing all this time. Oh, I, I, can uh, rem- I, I remember vividly meeting a fellow who told me he had been practicing yoga, and not just Hatha yoga, um, but, but uh, uh, deeper forms of yoga meditation, for 30 years. And he was so dissatisfied that he was still unhappy in his life. In other words, it's this... It's, your, it's, your heart has to go out to such. Oh, and it did. Because, because how, do you, how, do you, how do you respond to that? Because he could only see... Um, a failed technique, essentially. This is because he'd been seduced by the idea that happiness was the goal. Yeah, I think that's part of it, yeah. Or the goal that, uh, that a yogi, yogi or yogin, yogini uh, ought to have in, uh, in, in their yeah. intention. Well, yeah, and that, there's an aspect of this conversation that is, uh, gets into language, too. Um, it's kind of a coincidence that uh, we were having a conversation with some friends uh, yesterday about language uh, and, and in particular we were talking to someone who had uh, spoke three languages and could speak about and, interior and, processes and, 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 yeah, and makes a living as a translator. translator but could speak about it, uh, how learning a new language is like creating a new self but but what were the three languages? Uh, it, it was uh, Spanish, Spanish, English, and, and French. French. Okay. So they weren't vastly different, but um, but the point that, enough, yes. but yeah, but the point in the conversation that I wanted to relate here is that um, one of our participants was talking about language and um, uh, you know precise language, and, and he said that where people understand each other, the example he used is uh, in the transactional realm. In other words, like if I go into a shop. Even if I don't speak the language very well, it's very clear. I want that. Here's some money. And so the transactional is an area where we have less uncertainty about language. Whereas as you start to move into more abstract uh, modes of relationship, and you start talking about... Or even just emotional. Or, or, uh, you know, uh, faith or, you know, yeah, emotion, true. When you start to move into these more abstract areas, then uh, 
it's harder for people who don't have shared experience to necessarily be talking about the same things. And that's, and, and so one, in one sense, I, I guess I take from that, that it's, it makes sense that, um, we, there'd be this tendency towards the transactional because when it's transactional, then you can kind of communicate more clearly. Whereas, uh, at a basic level, yeah, though. at a basic level, because it's kind of like the uh, common, uh, the lowest common denominator. Well, you get richer relationships at the other levels. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, in fact, the, the, the and and, and, it, and you 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 have you you can't go into shared aim or emotional connection without a great deal more investment. Right, but then... The, but, there I'm using a transactional term, but you but, get what I mean. But, but, uh, but then maybe that suggests that uh, this whole arc of uh, seeing society and spiritual practice going to the transactional as a symptom rather than a cause, and the cause has to do with the degradation of a certain kind of relational um, uh, capacity or... I, I, I think that's a perfectly good way of looking at it. Yes, I'm not sure which is the chicken and which is the egg, but they go hand in hand, absolutely. Well, the uh, the thing about the conversation that Stuart's referring to uh, mm-hmm. about language that um, really struck me was uh, was that uh, you know this woman grew up uh, in uh, in Chile speaking Spanish. And when she went to France, she had she had she had taken a three month intensive uh, intellectual course in French in the French language, and and she thought she knew how to speak French at least at uh, at a certain level. Well, when she got to France, she found she could not actually relate to people on an ordinary basis with because. That's not the way people spoke. So the way she the and and what's interesting what was interesting to me is the way she described she had to become almost an infant, but certainly a child in that culture. Listen to listen as a child listens to adults and others speak. And then she could she could cre- she could create a uh, if you will a persona that could interact with people in that culture who had never tried to learn how to speak French, you know, consciously as she had done. She had, she, it had to go into her gut, as she said. You're raising something that I find very, very interesting. Because I, from what you and Stuart have said, one could infer that the globalization of English is one of the factors that has reduced everything to transactional relationships. Mm. I think I think that's an interesting. Uh, I mean, uh, intuitively, it strikes me as as having some some real. Uh, everybody can speak reality. English with each other, but as Stuart was pointing out, and you, you pointed out in your own way, not well enough to form relationships at the other levels mm-hmm. all the time, or it takes. A lot more effort, and uh, right. you know, and I'd never thought of that that way. Interesting. Thank you. Yeah. Well, this was a real. I mean, it was a. It was. 
you know, a group of uh, fellow fourth way practitioners from different uh, branches, if you will, of the fourth way. And, and I think everyone thought this was the most interesting conversation we'd had in our weekly uh, meetings that we'd had in a long time for, for that reason and, and others. But, but how, you know, how Gurdjieff talked about creating common language and how this this woman in her in her um, uh, material existence found that she could where she she related a story how that she knew she had learned french she she had the roommates and they were they had some problematic habits apparently and she came home one day and and she could um, express her dissatisfaction to them without any problem whatsoever. In then French. she knew in French. Then she knew. Then she knew that um, she 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 learned, learned the language as she meant to learn the language. Boy, you're reminding me of a lot of things. Uh, I learned Tibetan at one point, not not really well, but uh, uh, well enough realized that their way in Tibetan, I was a different person and there's a, a couple of people I know, Tibetans I know, who they were really different people in English and Tibetan. But you're reminding me very much of something that Yvonne Rand, the Zen te- late Zen teacher, told me. Suzuki Roshi was basically a country priest who was sent over here to mm-hmm. uh, minister to the Japanese community. He ended up becoming this, as we all know, very important teacher and uh, well renowned and for good reason apparently yes but the Japanese uh, and Japanese hierarchy were just like why do the Americans think he's such a great Zen teacher so he was visiting Japan and he was invited by a group of Japanese to give a talk and so he did and they went, these Americans are crazy. He's very good. Nothing special about him at all. And then a group of Suzuki Roshi's own students who were in Japan asked him to come and give them a talk. Mm-hmm. And some of the Japanese who had been at his talk in Japanese came and listened to his talk in English. Mm-hmm. And they came out of that talk saying, oh, now we see, because he was a completely different person in English. Yeah, this this uh, this woman who, um, to whom we're, uh, Stuart and I are referring in the conversation yesterday um, made exactly this point that she was uh, so on an emotional level in Spanish. Uh, sh- sh- her expression of Spanish was um, unobstructed. But in English, it was a different. She was a different person. There's always a little uh, sort of a filter, right? That's right. And and so and so, you know, your, your inference about about English, the the pervasive uh, effects of English spreading throughout the world, is uh, is interesting to me. And in, so, in a sense, it's it's a carrier. English, as people learn it. In, at least in uh, foreigners, um, 
has a, and, and we can argue <laughs> English, the people who grew up uh, speaking English, has almost an inherent um, quality to it, which is uh, you know of the of this quality that you're that you're that you pointed out at the at the very beginning that that life is transactional yes and it takes a lot more effort for two for a native speaker of english and a non-native speaker of english to build another kind of relationship yeah uh, let alone two uh, uh, two people who are coming from two different languages Maybe a little easier because who are using English as their common language. But you, act, but the uh, going back to the point you made earlier, to build a shared aim relationship, you have to have much deep, deeper levels of discussion and conversation mm-hmm. and and connection than you do for a, a transaction. And for uh, emotional connection, you need still deeper levels. And then you get to the spiritual realm, and then you're into something else entirely. So maybe maybe then uh, we should go into the spiritual realm and then then and then uh, uh, speak about what is that something else entirely. I mean, what what is what has to be the case there that um, uh, gets us beyond transaction? Well, not just beyond transaction. What came to mind as you were saying that, Stuart, was the way the Bodhisattva vow is viewed in different cultures. Now, in India, where Buddhism originated and where the whole theme of Bodhicitta originated, you have uh, one way that's talked about is you have the three kinds of Bodhicitta. king-like or queen-like, ruler-like, bodhicitta, uh, ferryman-like bodhicitta, and uh, shepherd-like bodhicitta. Hmm. I've never heard this distinction. That's interesting. The king-like bodhicitta is coming from your wish to help beings. And so the natural thing is to be as powerful and as strong as possible, and then you can help as many beings as possible. That's the king-like bodhicitta. Shepherd-like bodhicitta, uh, sorry, ferryman-like bodhicitta comes from an understanding that life is basically the same for all of us. And so you, you know, I'm not different from you, you're not different from me. Let's get, let's help each other get through this. And shepherd-like bodhicitta uh, comes from where you are so uh, imbued with your spiritual practice that you're just a natural response and you, you just take care of whatever comes into your world, like the shepherd takes care of the sheep. With, and, and there's no thought of self. It's coming out of non-self. So, but... What happened in China is interesting because the China Chinese took that last formulation of bodhicitta and extended it to the extent that the bodhisattva renounces their nirvana until all sentient beings have been saved. Mm-hmm. And so they took this myth to a totally different level. 
which has actually been quite problematic because people think that they have to postpone anything for themselves until they've saved all beings. And if they take that one literally, it becomes really a, ba- a bad mess. But So even at the spiritual level, these things can work in very, very different ways as they migrate from culture to culture. Hmm. Yeah, this is, I mean, uh, I mean, we're at a level where, um, I guess I want to take it back to the family. We, we, we skipped over yes. the family. Okay. Um, and so, um, um, and for a moment we can put aside, it, uh, or I invite us to put aside the uh, um, relationship of, of uh, spouses and focus on other familial relations and how they um, uh, how they manifest so uh, can I tell you a story? oh please because when you first mentioned this it reminded me I did a workshop in LA called Who Am I? okay that was an exploration of non-self basically but as part of this workshop and, and this surprised me when it occurred. I wasn't expecting this. Uh, there were about 50 people at this workshop, and I asked, okay, so think of who you are in relationship with your parents. And there was a certain atmosphere in the room. Uh, it was mixed. Uh, some had very positive relationship with their parents, some not. So it's kind of mixed. And then I said, okay, now think of who you are in relationship to your children. And the room, was, the room was just filled with a lot of loving and caring. You could just feel the energy. And then I said, and this is what I was just shocked at, think of who you are in relationship to your siblings. And immediately the room was just filled with pain. I was unbelievable. It's like, oh my God. Because... <laughs> You grow mm-hmm. up in the same family, but you have these relationships which are hierarchical, you know, transa- you know, all these different things, while you're trying to figure all of this stuff out. <laughs> but I, I always remember, I, I, I was not expecting that at all, but everybody just was shocked by how much pain was suddenly in the room. Hmm. Well, that's interesting. Uh, um, <clears throat> a more recent story, um, which is, uh, I run a spiritual bookstore and tea shop and and for many for a number of years we've had a, a customer comes in to have a pot of tea every other day or so and I think and he's around 80 years old and about a week and a half ago he came in to have his pot of tea and I asked him how he was doing and he broke down crying because his he said, "My bro- I just received a call this morning that my, my younger brother died. And um, the younger brother had, had been uh, out of touch with uh, him and the rest of the family for the most part for a number, for a number of years. He, he went on to say, um, I mean, there was, there was a lot about all that. Um, which I don't need to get into, but um, he went on to say how 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 strongly he how much he loved his brother and and was talking about their their childhood relationship. 
but this this uh, um, the guy in the in the store. Um, as I listened to it, it was a quite hierarchical thing. He was the older brother. He was the more competent brother. He, um, the other brother, would, if he took up, like like he became a Boy Scout and I don't know, probably Eagle Scout and all that's all the accomplishments that you achieve in there. And the other, the the younger brother wanted nothing to do with Boy Scouts and instead focuses energy elsewhere. And and then. And then, you know, I, I don't, you know, he, he was successful, the younger brother, apparently, in, in having a family and raising kids who were successful himself. But, but it sounds like he didn't feel that, that he was successful and he withdrew from his family. And, and the older brother was feeling all this pain associated with this, despite the, his sense of having loved his younger brother when they were, particularly when they were kids. And it was, it was, um, and I can, you know, speak for myself with my relationship with my sibling. It, you know, we were very like this relationship um, our customer was describing to me. Um, he was only like a year and eight months older. And that's not unlike my own relationship with my sibling. And there was a lot of friction a lot of friction growing up. So, um, so I'm, I'm not sure how that relates to the transactional. Well, but I think there is a connection somehow. You have all three operating in the family. Uh, when you're young, you can't exist without the family. You're, you're receiving things from the family. Mm-hmm. So there's a transactional component. Sure. And, and if you... In some families, if you don't do your chores, then <laughs> if you don't contribute to the family, mm-hmm. then there's the shared aim of being a family, which is of greater or lesser value depending on the family and the culture. Mm-hmm. And then there's the emotional connections with, uh, the, the, the form. And, and a lot of that depends on modeling from the parents, of course. But, uh, you know, it's, you are... The person you are and your sibling is the person they are. You may not actually like each other, even though you are in the fa- fa- family, mm-hmm. and that. And but you, you, you think you have to have this relationship because you're in the family. So that has leads to a lot of conflict and tension, internal conflict as well as external. Mm-hmm. So I, I think it's it's not a case of just looking at it in terms of what are the transactional dynamics. It's all three dynamics, and how do they okay. interact? So there's your this person who is caring towards his older brother, uh, his younger brother, but didn't realize how much space he had taken up and left much less. I, I read a very interesting article on comedians. Most comedians are the youngest people in their families. <laughs> And the reason is all of the older siblings have taken up all the other available space. Mm-hmm. All they, what they learn to do is entertain people from a very early age because that's how they survive. Well, baby Stuart, what do you have to say to that? <laughs> well, he is. He is. An entertainer, huh? Exactly. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what to say. <laughs> Touched on something important to us. <laughs> Thomas joke. <laughs> <laughs> so, so uh, let's uh, leave this topic. <laughs> and, 
you know, you, you, you mentioned something that uh, in the threefold model about, you know, of transaction and building something, uh, uh, shared aims, and, and then emotional support. Connection, rather. Yeah, support, connection. Yeah. Um, is there something, um, can we extend that ladder uh, or create a, a fourth about a spiritual connection? I mean, is there something that uh, is relevant in the in in understanding where these relationships uh, fit within a uh, spiritual practice I, th- I think you can um, if I look at myself like many people who set out on a spiritual path uh, I encountered a few difficulties and more than a few people have asked me, why did you keep going? And I thought about that very, very deeply. Not, I didn't just think about it, I examined myself very, very deeply. And I couldn't find any way that uh, my spiritual practice or path was operating as psychological compensation for something. So that's the transactional one. Even when it became very, very clear to me that I wasn't going to achieve anything great in the spiritual path, you know, like Thomas Merton or Meister Eckhart, or, you know. That, so it wasn't about achievement. And nor was it about emotional connection. And people said, well, why why did you keep going? And the only answer I've been able to come up with is that the idea of stopping simply never occurred to me. I I don't even know what that would mean. Mm -hmm. So I think in reference to your question, I I think you can talk about this. And and there is another quality. And I had... I met with a newly minted MBA from Stanford, Indian guy from South India. We had a very nice conversation, but in the email exchange following the conversation, he said, I'd said something to him in my email, he said, this serves as a very good reminder that there are some things in life that are best or only can be approached without any thought of getting something or achieving something, etc., and I thought, that's a really good quote. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, it just struck me. Uh, because, uh, And the recognition that there are there's some things in life that, for lack of a better term, I use the term calling, as you know. Yeah. Uh, and that if we don't pay attention to that calling, there's something really important missing from our lives. Well, that's interesting because um, I think... I think for some people, at least, religion formerly used to occupy that space, conceptually at least. So, I've, I've mentioned this before, when I was like three or maybe four years old, uh, in the Catholic Church that, that I later, uh, where, where I later went to the parochial school, it's, it was an altar boy, etc., etc., um, at this very early age, I had 
a numinous experience. And, um, and that was, it was a place where that seemed to fit having that experience. I later had, had, um, the uh, experience in other natural settings. Um, (laughs) sorry, I had a a brief interruption here. Um, so, um, so what I'm saying is that, that I think religious institutions in the, in the United States, in my experience, could be a, a location for what you're describing, where there are these things that are beyond the ordinary considerations that we have. And, and, and I think that's largely, not entirely, I'm sure, but but it, it, it the energy is slipping away from that. Uh, not slipping away. <laughs> I mean, falling uh, precipitously. <laughs> well, I I remember going to Europe in 1968. Mm-hmm. I was a lot younger, but going to uh, some of the great cathedrals mm-hmm. in Europe, and the. I mean, the, the architecture is magnificent and it's designed to evoke the spiritual, obviously. Yeah. But there is such a, a powerful spiritual presence. But I went and... Uh, I went with a friend in 2012, I guess. And we went to several of the great French cathedrals, Rouen, uh, Chartres, and so forth, and Notre Dame. And there was, there was nothing there. Hmm. It completely dissipated. On the other hand, when I was in Berlin, uh, Alexandra, whom you've had on this uh, podcast, uh, took me to a modern church that had been built to replace something that had been destroyed in the war. It's the only modern church I've been in where I felt a spiritual presence. Hmm. I, I was just floored. I was like, wow. And, and architecture is... I hadn't ever seen anything like it, but there, it, it, there's really something you could feel there. Hmm. So the, uh, I think that uh, the reason I say uh, slipping away is that I think churches, for all kinds of reasons, have moved from being or trying to be repositories of that quality that you're referring to to moving into meeting people's emotional needs, yeah. Uh, give them a sense of achieving something or even just straight transactional uh, basis and you know and one can look at the reasons for that and there are all kinds of reasons no need to go into them but I, I think that they have moved away from their essential purpose function which is to be repositories of that quality Call well, it repositories of the mystery yeah, yeah I, that's a good way of putting it so 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 I had I had the experience um of being an altar boy with the Latin Mass, and then uh, after two years, uh, the Vatican Council changed it, so I had to relearn everything in English. Now that was one change that occurred in the uh, in the Mass, in the expression of the Mass. But then there, there, what was added was uh, you were actually to greet fellow. Uh, um, parishioners and and at first uh, I, I actually pre- um, 
I, it, it didn't feel quite aligned with the numinous, but, but it was, it was, it was fun. I, I had occasion, oh, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago to go to, to go to a Catholic mass with, uh, with a relative. And what, what, what I experienced in that sharing that is intended to be um, foster communion was 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 no kind of emotional connection whatsoever, and um, and and it was it was a little jarring to me to see how how um, eviscerated <laughs> that that the intention had had. Or what 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 the intention had had morphed into, yeah, and um, uh, so so I guess um, I mean I would conclude from 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 this that that the loss of genuine religious intention and feeling um, is related to this. Um, uh, pervade, the pervasiveness that you, you started the conversation with of the transactional in life because people don't have an experience of anything other than that and that at least for me as a kid did offer something along those lines yeah. when I was in Vancouver in the early years it was in the 70s uh, our center was asked to send someone down to talk to a group of young adults these are people in their... I was in my mid-twenties at this point, and these were people in their early twenties, so there wasn't a big age difference. And uh, so there's about 12 people, and they're the priest, uh, Catholic priest. And uh, I talked about my relationship with my teacher and uh, practicing Buddhism, and I talked a bit uh, about prayer. And, uh, and I said... And, and you know and the importance and I use the Catholic term of getting spiritual direction and I said are you familiar with it uh, and people sort of look oh, spiritual direction haven't you talked to your uh, priest about spiritual direction and at this point the priest turned like this so I couldn't see he turned and doubled over and I went oh my god have I said something wrong and he stayed like that for a long time. There's just this uncomfortable silence because they didn't know what I was talking about. I didn't know whether I should go any further. And the priest wasn't giving me any cues whatsoever because he was doubled over. Mm-hmm. And after a couple of minutes, he's unbent and looked at me and he was laughing. He said, Ken, you have no idea how carefully I've been nudging people in that direction and you just come straight out and say it. <laughs> <laughs> I sort of like, <laughs> but it's it's the spiritual has become so um, because it doesn't fit into the ordinary order of humanity. Mm-hmm. It has become so suspect, and people who uh, you know they hide their spirituality, they hide their connection because it is so mistrusted. And, and and the priest was trying to get these people in that direction, but was being very careful about it because he didn't want to. Uh, he was trying to build the relationship, which allowed 
something like that. But I, I think this is terribly sad. It is sad, and and um, this repository of the mystery, as Stuart says, I think it's a very good phrase. It mm. is, and uh, which is directly in opposition to most people's understanding of science, which is to take the mystery out of life. That's a good point. Yes. To explain everything so that you can control and predict it. Predict and control it. Yeah, I mean, in fairness to scientists, I think scientists uh, uh, look upon or have a, a certain kind of sense of mystery and their particular brand of focus and exploration is is enlivened by that 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 uh, connection. Uh, yeah. But but you're right that as that the expectation in society because science has been so successful um, has been that people assume that's what you know science does take yeah. the mystery out, yeah. which is. Interesting to me because um, you know now as we look at the current uh, sort of uh, craziness in our society, um, you kind of get a sense that uh, you know the allure of conspiracy theories and and the things that uh, are driving so many people right now is partly because uh, uh, they've been robbed of uh, a mystery. Well, they they. they Lost, and I agree with you completely, scientists who are doing uh, research at the frontiers, they know full well. Uh, uh, yeah. you know, they have a visceral connection with the mystery because they're constantly, you know, hypothesis and don't know what, they're, what things are. But uh, you retreat from that, it all looks very solid. And, and, and I think the effect of that has been to, uh, you use the term rob, uh, but take away or uh, eliminate whatever term you want to use people having any mystery in their lives and so COVID comes in and plunks mystery you know this unknown thing which we didn't know anything about and couldn't know anything about because it takes time to build up a lot yeah. and people couldn't relate to having su- such a significant Unknown that they had to deal with in every aspect of life, and this this wasn't just the ordinary person. The politicians, everybody, has. Uh, it's quite astonishing the degree to which this has revealed the shortcomings in pretty well every society in the world. Hmm. Well, I'm going to tell uh, tell you a story about um, uh, a, a scientist, a, a geneticist. Um, Who's just her? I think her name is Jennifer Raff, and she's just published a work, a book uh, directed to pop, uh, popular audience. Um, I haven't read the book yet, but I heard her give a talk in, in a, uh, a podcast about the subject of the book, and 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 she is one of those people. So, so the subject matter is the, the peopling of the Americas. And she's trying to balance her archaeological, excuse me, her genetic um, evidence from populations, the, the, the genes of different populations in the Americas and elsewhere, in order to 
mesh that with the archaeological evidence that exists. But one of the things that I thought was really interesting, um, and it's a, it's a definitely a, a trend that, I, that I've seen in my career in archaeology, is that she works very, very closely with Native American groups in order to be um, sensitive to their concerns about the use of their their own um, genes and and the analysis of their their genes, so as not to attempt um, inadvertently to invalidate their own sense of who they are as a people and how how they've how they've treated and it's a, it's. Um, it means that it takes her longer to do her research because she has to establish a relationship with living people. It's not just about the dead people, which is what uh, archaeologists have tended you know, before the last generation or so. That's, that's kind of how they, they... The dead people don't care, so we can do whatever we want with their bones. And we can say whatever we want about them. Exactly. exactly. So, um, so, so here's a woman who, who, who is clearly expressing her um, enthusiasm about her work, while at the same time maintaining a relationship with people that her work would, would affect. Sometimes in a very profound and deep and deep way, and I, and and of course, you know, uh, physicists don't don't get to have relationships with uh, elementary particles. I suppose we, we have the all same the time. <laughs> really, can't get away from them. <laughs> Most of them just pass through. Neutrinos. Yeah, yeah, I was going to say the neutrinos <laughs> win here. <laughs> Implicit in your comments, Rob, is another question, which I'm not sure is on topic, but it's uh, something you might explore another time, possibly. Uh, I'll I'll transpose it into a Buddhist context. Mm -hmm. That is, uh, the uh, the Prajnaparamita Sutras, the Perfection of Wisdom Sutras, Mm -hmm. are uh, generally uh, regarded in the Tibetan tradition, I think in the Indian tradition, as uh, originating with Nagarjuna, who brought them back, uh, you know, who's given them by the, the Nagas. And uh, so this is a myth associated with mystery, etc. But textual analysis uh, re- reveals that they were written, you know, ver- they were written at various periods, and they can pretty well say what period within a hundred years or so a, a sutra was was written uh, and so you have this historical analytical record versus the mythical mm-hmm. and I don't know how those are reconciled I'm not sure anybody else has figured out how those are reconciled and that's implicit in what you were saying about it, it is but I, I'm, I, I, and my response would be they don't have to be reconciled they can exist they can coexist and be meaningful for, for people 
in different ways at different times um, in their lives. No, because I've, I've heard very highly respected lamas, mm-hmm. not mentioning any names, uh, but very high, mm-hmm. uh, insist that the science or the analysis is false and the myth is true. Uh-huh. And so there's a problem with what the nature of truth is here, which right. needs yes. to be seized out. Right, right. But you know, but the the thing is, and we have the same thing with uh, s- some aspects of Christianity, where this is held to be true, and to deny that it is true in any way is really problematic for the faith, for for the doctrine. Mm-hmm. And so that that's what I mean about really not being reconciled. Yeah, I mean this this. Uh gets into a topic we've talked about in conversations before about the nature of allegory and um, you know I've quoted Gurdjieff's uh, diagnosis of this as uh, you know literal thinking which we might call transactional thinking for purposes of this conversation mm-hmm. uh, comes about when the feeling center ceases to participate in the mentation of the uh, being and you know allegory is a, a language of the feeling center and myth is a language of the feeling center so you know again you know truth and falsehood don't show up in the same way as they do in a transactional or sort of a literal sort of mind and if you have that understanding then it's possible I think to hold those together without any sort of uh, uh, either or a contradiction. It's just that there are ways of knowing. I think you're suggesting something which hadn't occurred to me before. There's a lot of the problems that we're having in this world right now is that people are relate, relating to myths as in a tra- from a transactional mindset. Yeah. What what example would you bring forward? Well, I'm thinking a lot of the conspiracy theories, mm-hmm. and so these these myths cannot coexist. It's either this one or that one, which is not the nature of myths. Nor nor can they coexist with the uh, uh, objective reality of uh, yeah. of uh, uh, causality that uh, we're enmeshed in. Yeah. And so th- there's a because of the transa- the per- pervasiveness of the transactional mindset. There is only one form of truth, and things, and so now everybody insists that whatever they hold on to, like the anti-vaxxers or the, mm-hmm. this, that is what is true, and and there's very very little flexibility around that, and that and it's it's that polarization that leads to the uh, well. In, in some ways, it's I mean the polarization arises the not so much because someone is saying this is true they're saying what you're saying is untrue it's okay. a it's a falsehood it's a lie it's a i can't trust it yeah, yeah. i don't trust it but i mean it, but it's it's difficult for people to hold opposing or or competing ideas like is it possible to hold the idea that the pharmaceutical industry is uh, filled with uh, bad incentives and and yet a virus or an anti-virus agent that's produced by that could actually be uh, efficacious physically. I mean, if people don't. It's like one or the other. Yeah, exactly. Yes. It's like either it's all good and you can trust everything that uh, Pfizer says, or it's all bad and you can trust nothing that Pfizer says, and and that's just not the way the world works. 
But people want it to work that way. They do. They do because because um, it simplifies. Well, it, they think it simplifies their lives. But it speaks to what Stuart said uh, that uh, they don't want to deal with the mystery. Or people, people are. Uh, that's too strong a statement. People no longer know how to deal with mystery. So, so I think that's. I yeah. think that's it, and that's that gets back to the um, um, uh, the, the level of, of analogy that that um, Gurdjieff talks about, and um, and and people need to be able to relate somehow to the universe in that way. Nothing is nothing. Uh, I guess I guess I, I put I, I'll assert that I can't think of a universe where there are no mysteries. Period. But people want to impose that on their experience that there are no mysteries. They want certainty, and that you know you, you and I kind of uh, read read a book, uh, each read a book, the same book, many uh, maybe a year ago. About um, the, the Reformation, yes, and and in many ways that was that was a uh, a tripwire um, for Western culture and then world culture as uh, as mm-hmm. the, the West has um, expanded throughout the planet and and um, and it's had pernicious effects on, on the way people respond to that which they cannot explain. And conspiracy theories, I think, are, are a way that people feel a need, uh, feel find, they think they've found a way to fill a need with a conspiracy theory. Yeah. Yeah. But it's also, just to go back to Stuart's point, uh, one of the things that came out of the Reformation was the abolition of slavery. True. So you, you, you've got this this event, which I agree with you completely, had far more far-reaching consequences on Western society than I had given it credit for mm-hmm. before I read that book. And yet there were good things, that, you know, and some really pernicious ones. But there were some very good things that came out of it too. So uh, separation of church and state was another, yeah, and uh, which may or may not have been a good thing. We don't. <laughs> We don't know. It depends on which church and which state. Yeah. So, so, so this uh, sense of the mystery, you know, as we're talking about this, I'm reflecting on, um, I hate to use this phrase, what does that mean? Uh, but uh, where, I, where I go with that is that there's, a, there's a, a, a place of being where we don't know or where we don't have the answer. And that, that to me is a mystery. It's like there's this uh, uh, mystery of being that we can't objectify. And that is approached through feeling. And when that feeling gets occluded by a transactional way of thinking, then it's like we're just, we're, we're running around the, a house looking for our glasses and they're on top of our head in a certain kind of way because that which is with us we have no access to 
and we keep going outside and, and trying to find things that's a, to that's, build that's a great analogy by the way. In, in, in Schumacher and Gurdjieff's thinking uh, one of the ways they say it is the organ that is capable of perceiving things is atrophied yeah mm-hmm. yeah and uh, so yeah. how do we how do we perfuse it with uh, life is the question I suppose well I was thinking about just that the other day that I mean, if somebody who asked me what is the purpose of life I would say to enrich the lives of others no I like that I like that one which can be done in so many ways yeah and one of the ways is when the, when the opportunities arise to uh, inject or bring out or put people in touch with some aspect of mystery hmm. sometimes the, the appropriate thing to do is just give them Glass of water, <laughs> yeah, sure, and uh, the uh, or, a, or a good meal or attention, yeah. just attention. Yeah, uh, yeah. well, that's already at a considerably higher level. But uh, the uh, and the, I, I think that's your question. Um, unflatten society <laughs> or uh, unflatten ourselves. So that we, we embrace both the horizontal and the vertical and trust that that has an effect on people who interact with us. I think, yeah, I, I, mean, I, I would agree that that's, the, that's actually the only thing that, because spreading ideas has, has, little, has little effect, I would say. I think I th- when, you, when you say that it's how we relate to other people, that has the... Um, dimension of the emotional and even the, the bodily um, that um, it's simple I, that simply spreading ideas no matter how well expressed can have at least that that's that's I'm not I'm not I'm not denying the importance of spreading uh, sensible ideas, ideas ideas have huge impacts yes. not all this good <laughs> No, and, and 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 I agree with that. But but to but to bring in the mystery to someone whose whose organ for perceiving the mystery is not um, in, is not this, working properly. That's why I like the opening of the Diamond Sutra so much. Refresh my memory. Buddha comes back from begging alms, mm-hmm. and he comes back to. The monastery, or you know, where all the monks are hanging out, and Subhuti, who's the interlocutor, right. observes the uh, Buddha coming in, taking off his outer robe, folding it up, putting it down, putting sleep, uh, making a seat, and sitting down. And it doesn't say this explicitly in the Diamond Sutra. Mm-hmm. But my reading of it is that Subhuti is just stunned by the naturalness of Buddha's movements. Mm. So much so that he immediately gets up, circumambulates Buddha, bows down and says, please tell me, how does a Bodhisattva stand? How does a Bodhisattva move? How does a Bodhisattva control his mind? Mm. (laughs) See, And it's just like, and I, I, I mean, I, I remember sometimes I watch some people interact or speak 
Uh, and, I, and, and, I, and, and there's such naturalness and such consummate skill. I just look and go, how did you do that? <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I, I might have mentioned this um, uh, recently the, the in, in, in our uh, bookstore. Uh, a father and two young boys. Oh yes, 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 and and it's like, you know, it, it's to see the naturalness of their relationship was just like like uh, a delicious meal. Yeah, yeah, mm. a delicious meal. So, um, in the last uh, uh, fifteen minutes or so, uh, I'd like to kind of wrap this with uh, transaction again, but then get back to the question of um, what a spiritual practice that's not grounded in transaction looks like or what is it? What does that mean? Because I think that's an important uh, point. We've touched on in other conversations, but uh, certainly apropos here. There's, I, there's almost certainly a developmental aspect there's a, that is your spirit, as your spiritual practice matures your motivation uh, changes mm-hmm. and, and develops uh, <clears throat> or maybe the, the depth of your motivation is revealed I, I, don't, I could say that and it's stru- uh, reminded in a way a bit of uh, all and everything uh, not all and everything uh, meetings with remarkable men another Gurdjieff's books. In the movie, you, you, can, you can actually see this more clearly. You have these characters, and each one of them can only go so far. Uh, and and Gurdjieff in, in, goes off in, completely into the unknown. Uh, and I think I think it's a non-transactional. I mean, some people they approach spiritual practice; they they want to get something. Uh, and other people want community, and other people want um, an emotional connection. But I think, for me, the key is, yes, that may be there, and there's a possibility of questioning it. And maybe I'm using the term questioning because my primary relationship is with insight. Mm -hmm. But if it was uh, with power... For instance, the question would be, what am I doing here? What am I actually doing here? If it was uh, with ecstasy, it might be something like, uh, what am I not opening to? And if it was with compassion, it would be, uh, what am I not serving? Or what do I need to serve? Uh, and so there's that kind of questioning that is taking place so that there's an engagement of deepening practice and when and using the word deepening I'm already using the metaphor of the vertical mm-hmm. and so the, so a non-transactional relationship with practice is, a, is, is one in which one is questioning <laughs> so that was just what I was going to take from what you, uh, the, the long uh, answer you were you were offering. It, it, in other words, um, transactional doesn't leave an open question. It concludes. Yes. It does not. It does not extend. 
there may then be another transaction and another transaction, but but there is not a there is not a process, a continuing process. There may be different levels of transactions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But then it's a, it's a, again, uh, is it surrendering to the unconditioned or the unconditional? Because to even in a simple meditation like uh, you know when a thought arises just to let it go is to release the invitation to find an answer and just to simply be present to we'll call it the mystery I, I, I'm I've never been terribly comfortable with the term surrender but yeah that's right <laughs> I forgot <laughs> uh, but it's uh, <clears throat> but uh, let me use it in, in, in the way that you're <clears throat> presenting it I might say it's uh, surrendering to the mystery however you experience it at this point yeah I, I was thinking I was thinking about um, uh, the some of the like just practices of being in the body just being present to the body and there's an unconditioned aspect of that, which is as I allow my attention just to be present to, you know, even if pain arises, I don't have to do something about it. Um, uh, but just be present to this phenomenon of embodied sensation that that too is a uh, uh, a mystery. I mean, definitely. When I, I when I eventually learned to relate to my body, <laughs> it certainly didn't start off that way. Uh, I've always found that there is infinite depth in the body. Mm-hmm. At least, I don't know whether there's infinite depth. I have never been able to plumb the depths of the body. Would be a more accurate way to say it. Yeah. Uh, and I find that fascinating and mysterious. Yeah. That you, you can just go down forever. It seems to me. Yeah. And, and, and kind of by analogy, in a way, to, uh, uh, turning attention back on awareness itself is... is for me a similar yes and in a way they're both you know that this is how in the uh, indigenous and the hermetic traditions uh, when we talk about the the sun and the earth or you know or the stars and the earth and bringing them together it's like both of those together mm-hmm. is is like the constant mystery and here we are in the middle yes heaven and earth yeah 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 well about i mean um what you just said, Stuart, resonates with one of the explorations that I, I do every every night uh, uh, in my meditation uh, meditation at night. But but I'm also being nourished by um, re- by having uh, the sensations that I'm paying attention to that I more and more realize are the same sensations that animals have. Mm-hmm. In other words, they, the animals... It, it's like uh, someone someone said to me, said something to me in a yoga uh, training about um, 
not doing the cat pose, but feeling how a cat feels in its body. And I'm finding that to be really, uh, really nourishing because I... I Good instruction for downward dog. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that would be non-transactional, right? (laughs) I'm reminded as you're saying this about this article I passed around to us about uh, uh, research into looking at feeling in insects. Oh, right, right, and, right. And uh, yeah. just, just the, uh, uh, you know, the recognition that this mystery that we partake in is shared, the shared mystery. It's just incomprehensible to me that people could have thought that fish or insects or whatever wouldn't experience pain. Because... I mean, it's basically it's a basic survival mechanism, yeah. really. And so, you know, they don't feel anything. Just never made any sense to me. Right. And then we. Uh, but then I, we. But then we can treat them transactionally. <laughs> well, we justify that in the sense of, right. oh, well, they don't really feel pain because they don't have a, they don't have a thought, you know, of they don't they don't have an ego and therefore an identification with an ongoing uh, state of pain that's divorced from the momentary sensation yeah. that's that's usually the justification yeah which I, I find completely bogus yeah doesn't hold water so, I, I think therefore I hurt yeah <laughs> um, one thing that you said uh, <laughs> one one thing you said uh, at one point in one of our conversations about a non-transactional uh uh, spiritual practice is that it's a it's a way of living or a way of uh, uh, you know it's a we enter into a spiritual practice and this I think this is probably more true as it, the practice matures it becomes a way of living or a way of being as opposed to anything that we get something out of yes and you know I think I I, I think I told the story once in a conversation with you about you know how my teacher had given me this uh, task of filling a uh, 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 five-gallon carboy with pennies, and so I was. And he, he had said, "Well, when this is full, you can hope to be enlightened." So I was very fixated on you know, finding <laughs> pennies wherever I could, and you know, so, so it's like I had this complete transactional relationship where I was finding it, literally it was perfect because it was transactional. It was yeah. pennies, and and somewhere you know maybe halfway full or something like that and I was in the living room here and I just suddenly just I stopped and I was suddenly hit with this sense of the end didn't matter that the process was everything and uh, you know just sort of amplify on that uh, amplify that would you yeah it was like I I, I, take it out of the cliches uh, what I mean is that I didn't I saw the absurdity of my trying to fill this jar uh, with pennies and realize that as as a means to get into well not not even as a means but as, as a yeah as a as an aim and or that, that I realize that I realized this gratitude for just being engaged in this work you know and it was like that with the, this just being in this something was exhausted yeah yeah it was it was, it was a you know a, a wonderful teaching and it didn't stop me from actually filling the the, the jar because I could have both be true but it was like I it, it no longer mattered 
Yeah. And I didn't identify, oh, now, it's John, now this is Phil, I'm, I'm truly enlightened. And uh, uh, it, it just didn't matter. It was like... Um, so it, it, it was... It was it the was way a, of being. It was the way of living. It was exhausting the achieving mind. Yeah. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Very good. Good. Yeah. And, and But that moment when that... It wasn't even like... Exhausting makes it sound like... It was just... <laughs> it was like... It just... The, the smallness of that mind... Mm-hmm. Uh, in the face of something else that had been created... Uh, was what was so evident. Yeah. You know... Yeah. It wasn't because it wasn't like that mind goes away. I still have that mind. That mind operates all the time, but it's not. And so it's not. It's not exactly that it's exhausted. It's just that it's now a part of a much bigger context. Yeah, yeah. I think that's very. I think that says it better. Yeah. Fun. I remember. I remember uh, being so amused by your obsession. <laughs> Yeah, I couldn't just go take ten dollars to the bank and get a bunch of pennies. Uh, although uh, sometimes uh, Robert, my teacher, would uh, you know we would have poker night and we would play, and I get to you know, take all the pennies from the poker uh, game at the end of the evening. So that was that was a big boon. But uh, uh, I couldn't go buy just go buy pennies. I, I had to get them and change. Boy, I can't remember the last time I've seen a penny. Now. I know. Well, that's, yeah, this, is, this is a funny thing. Like even at that time for me, and this was like uh, uh, I don't know what, uh, probably thirty years ago. Uh, uh, I was worried that the mint was going to stop making pennies. <laughs> <laughs> Boy, he really trapped you. Yeah, he, did. <laughs> he knew me very well. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, any we have uh, uh, about three minutes left. So, any uh, closing uh, uh, comments? Well, I, I appreciate the, the um, that you have uh, held us to this uh, topic. <laughs> um, although we've strayed pretty far, and I'll take responsibility for for a good part of that. But we uh, meandered. Meandered. Okay, that's a ni- that's a nicer word. We've enriched. Yeah. Even better. <laughs> So, so I'm 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 grateful that that we did come back to this topic, mm-hmm. um, as um, um, it's rich for me, and 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 I've had some um, integration of of some of the, of of some memories that have arisen just in this just in this mm-hmm. context. So so to me that's a that's a that's a, a mark of a good conversation. Is when stuff comes up that fits into the um, the co-creation that we're that we engage in. Well, I'm certainly uh, you know, both what you and Stuart have, have said just brought up all kinds of memories and associations. But I very much appreciate being able to have these conversations with you because it gives me an opportunity to talk about these things that I don't often have and refine some of these ideas and also see how they play in different contexts, etc. But I found this particular framework immensely useful, uh, both for myself personally uh, and helping uh, straighten out uh, confusion in other people so that they they can see more clearly how to direct their efforts in their practice or and sometimes in their lives and how not to get caught by the limitations of the transactional mind, uh, which I, I, I think is quite insidious, actually. Yeah. 
Well, I th- you know, as, as Stuart and I approach um, retirement in the in the uh, worldly sense, with job with uh, jobs and careers and stuff like that, actually um, letting go, not surrendering, but letting go <laughs> um, of of some of the urgency of of the uh, concern around that that those forms the forms of transaction that that arise in in career etc um has been has been has been arising for me and and i appreciate you know in this conversation getting some further uh, exposure to different ideas about it i think this is what covid did <clears throat> for quite a few people hmm. but oh and and sort of snapped them out of the spell of the transactional yeah. for a while anyway. Okay, and it, some it, of them quite well, completely. It demonstrated that uh, there were other possibilities. <clears throat> exactly. And that's uh, actually a blessing. So we conclude with the great retirement? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you once again. Well, thanks very much. You have been listening to The Mystical Positivist. This is your host, Stuart Goodnick. This week on the show, we featured a pre-recorded conversation with returning guest Ken McLeod in which we discussed the degree to which a transactional mode of being permeates our lives, relationships, and spiritual practice. We explored goals and relationship, the transactional as the currency of the horizontal realm, what a non-transactional way of living might be, and the unconditioned nature of the vertical realm. This episode is another installment in an extended conversation that we have been having with Ken over the last couple of years. Ken is the founder and director of unfetteredmind.org. He is the author of Wake Up to Your Life, Discovering the Buddhist Path of Attention, The Great Path of Awakening, An Arrow to the Heart, Reflections on Silver River, and his most recent book, A Trackless Path. Thank you for joining us once again for The Mystical Positivist. Podcasts of all our shows can be found at www.mysticalpositivist.blogspot.com as well as commentary and discussion of topics of interest to the show. Also, please send comments and feedback to mysticalpositivist at gmail.com. Join us again next Saturday. 